And I apologize in advance because I did not get enough sleep last night because I'm spending too much time with the Leviathan Falls audiobook. And James S.A. Corey's trying to kill me. Well, I can't start it yet. I I have the book, like, you know, I pre-ordered the Kindle, the ebook, like ages ago. So it's delivered now, but I'm holding off until I have some space. Yeah. Right at the point where I'm like, okay, just, I need to turn it off and go to sleep. Something happened. And then I had to listen to three more chapters to make sure it was okay. Things were going to be okay. And <laughs> that's always the nature of the Expanse books. can't sleep chapters. right now. Yeah. The Expanse books are, they're total page turners. Always. It's real hard oh. to put them down. It's killing me. That's why yeah. I don't start. <laughs> that's wisdom. Right why there, read everyone. when that's, I cannot? <laughs> That's the voice of wisdom. Reading isn't really a part of my reality right now, but I'll circle back with y'all in like 15 years. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to Murder Husbands, an episode-by-episode deep-dive appreciation of the Brian Fuller-created series Hannibal, based on characters from the novels by Thomas Harris. We are Popsicle, a group of like-minded creators who enjoy getting together to have big conversations for big stories. I am your host today, Lisa K. Weber. I am an artist who draws comics and boundaries. With me, as always. (laughs) Don't step over that line, folks. (laughs) With me, as always, are my popsicle co-hosts. First up, light of my life and blacksmith of words. It's Kelly Sue Milano. Hi, Kelly Sue. Oh, hello. Delightful. (laughs) Next up, Bill Graham is not the only one sporting a new hairdo. It's Justin Penniston. Hi, Justin. (laughs) Hi. It's not really a new hairdo as much as I just shaved and my hair squint and blah, blah, blah. (laughs) (laughs) Next up, Space geek, crafty woman, Claire Thorne. Good to see you, Claire. How you doing? Oh, man. Hello. (laughs) Woman. And finally, um, the man, the myth, the legend, our producer, Philip Kelly. How are you doing today, Phil? Oh, I am. I am well. I'm well. Yeah. Thank you. Glad to hear it, everybody. All right. Before we dig in, Justin and Kelly C will take us through a quick recap of this week's episode, Yakimono. There are lots of bodies in this one. Let's start with the live one, Miriam Lass. The once missing, thought murdered Miriam Lass is now home, minus one arm, after Jack found her at the bottom of a well in the nightmare barn. She's left traumatized, yet also calm, due to the fact that she doesn't actually remember anything except flashing lights and the shadow of a man. We, of course, know what it means, but Jack is all like, hmm, weird. When he asks why she was spared, she says she wasn't. He was just saving her for last. This clues Jack into Hannibal as a suspect, and given the suspicion suspicion that he's eating victims, but when he's brought in for Miriam to anonymously identify him via his voice, she's sure it's not him. Rats! So close. Because it's now very clear that Will is not the Ripper, he's released from Chilton's nut house, but not before Frederick can beg him for advice. 
Everyone who knows about Chilton's suggested therapy practices is missing or dead, and Chilton just knows Hannibal is bound to make a meal of him next. Will tells him to confess to being a petty, shady, self-obsessed weirdo whose unorthodox approach drove Gideon even crazier. Chilton couldn't possibly kill his reputation, so he chooses his own death, I guess, because what he does instead is offer to help extract Miriam Lass's memories in exchange for FBI protection? What an idiot. Mac heads to the Baltimore State Hospital for the Criminally Insane to, quote, offer Will a ride, giggity. But we know full well Jack really just wants to take him to the nightmare bar. Shameless. Will understandably is like, oh, I'm not a crazy psychopath now, and you want my help, which is the same help that drove me crazy? Cool, bro. It isn't until Jack says Miriam insists that Hannibal isn't the Ripper that Will becomes interested. And wow, is he interested now. Off to the nightmare bar. Once there, Will observes the scene. The glass panels that held, held Beverly's section body, jars of her blood, the flowers found in the treed-up council room. Will willifies the scene and finds himself standing in Hannibal's office, staring at the tree man and placing a heart bound in flowers inside his chest. All the flowers start to bloom and bleed, and it's actually really pretty. And Will begins to see that it's all his design. Will says something will be found that leads him away from Hannibal Lecter, and that nothing here is as it seems. It all seems pretty insane, honestly. Next, Will goes home to find Alana with his dogs. She's all like, how could you about trying to kill Hannibal? Then very desperately is like, is he safe? This clues Will into the fact that she's sleeping with Hannibal and given her total righteousness about it also leads him to be like, you need to get the F away from that dude, pronto. She doesn't listen. So Will shows up in Hannibal's kitchen and even though we know he's happy to see him, Hannibal takes a bitchy shot at Will's aftershave. He's letting him know he's mad, but also being flirty because remember when I teased you about your aftershave? Will pulls a gun on him so the fun's over, but leaves in a sultry flash when Hannibal flinches. The FBI finds evidence of Miriam's scene that points to both Hannibal and Chilton, so Jack says bring them both in. Cut to Frederick coming home to find Abel Gideon's hacked-up corpse in his guest room. Once he sees Hannibal in the murder suit, he knows he's screwed. Hannibal hits him with that chloroform, and he wakes up covered in blood and finds two FBI agents murdered so hard in his kitchen. <laughs> he flees to Will's to make a plan, but Will has already called, back, called Jack, because he's really the only option for children at this point. He's cheesed, put in an orange jumper, and plopped in front of Alana for questioning. Miriam is on the other side of the glass, though, and with the first notes of his voice, loses her shit, claims it's him, and shoots him in the face. Worst day ever. We end with Will showing up at Hannibal's with a truly hot off the press haircut for his standing appointment. He says he wants to resume his therapy and honestly, I'm done with all these psychos right now. You are? Did we finally get to it? <laughs> I'm close. <laughs> I'm not done with these psychos yet, that's for sure. Um, <laughs> So let's start with Hannibal's great design and the bearing of its fruit. Um, so in this episode, it's like all the pieces have fallen into place. Miriam is back with Jack or has been returned to the land of the living and into Jack's sphere. Chilton 
takes the fall for being the ripper and will is alive and free and back in therapy these are some impressive machinations by dr lecter um but how much of this do you think he actually predicted versus like did he like really see this all playing out like this or like how much do you think he just relied on people being shitty thoughts, feelings, and this is free time to talk about Miriam, to talk about Chilton, like Jack, because we're going to talk a lot about Hannibal and Will in a minute. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to start off with a little bit of a zag. So um, since we all met last, uh, Stephen Sondheim passed away. Oh, oh my God. You're clearing me as we speak, Kelly, you're clearing me. Oh, you, I had, I had a feeling I may clear someone on this one. So, you know, I adored Stephen Sondheim so desperately and I listened to so many of his songs and all of his music in the wake of his passing. Um, and I particularly spent time with Raul Esparza singing being alive. And so watching this episode in particular after that was really interesting because, you know, he's singing about the beauty of being alive or whatever. And in this episode, we watch Raul Esparza as Frederick Chilton being like, my days are fucking numbered and I need to figure this out. It was mm. such a strange like juxtaposition for me. Um, but to bring it back to this question, I think that I don't think that that Hannibal can really predict necessarily to to down to the details, but I think that I think he may have always been sort of positioning Chilton to be his fall guy because mm -hmm. Chilton fancies himself to be like I think he even oh no wait am I thinking I might be thinking an episode ahead, um, but he talks about how they have such a similar profile. Yes. Like, and Chilton actually wants to be like Hannibal, you know? Yeah. Um, and so I think that he was always sort of like, if it, you know, push comes to shove, it's going to be Frederick. Um, yeah. And he also knows everyone so well because he's obviously psychologist extraordinaire. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. He does know people. Inside and out. Heyo. <laughs> I um you cleared you cleared me so hard with that, although I can still talk about it because I was re-watching uh Raul Esparza singing Finish the Hat from oh, Sunday in yeah. the Park with George. And that started yeah. me down a whole rabbit hole of how that that play is all about cre the creative obsession and controlling yeah. every single detail. And suddenly that was, was chiming so hard with Hannibal, which was very disturbing to me as well. So anyway, but Raul Esparza, I mean, it just, he is, I will just say that he is freaking brilliant in this episode. Is. This is his episode. He is so oh, great. Yeah. Oh. It's good to see him do so much stuff. And then it's delightful to go listen to him sing because yeah. also that's always amazing. And Brian Fuller, if you're listening to this, can we get a Hannibal the musical? Oh my oh. God, please. Yes. I don't know why we don't have one already. 
with 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 one long dancing scene for Mads Mikkelsen. I mean, well, yeah, clearly we're gonna have dance. to do a whole he like. Can. Well, what yeah, we know. Yeah, he's a he's a trained dancer, mm-hmm. so it's like we can do a whole like American in Paris style like dance production. Yes. And we're also going to be doing this with you, Brian Fuller. Yeah, <laughs> when we say we, we mean you and us. <laughs> Um, I think <laughs> that when Hannibal framed Will, I think that was him interrupting or replacing a plan that he's always had, a, you know, set up. I think I, I agree with Kelly Sue that setting up Chilton was always the plan. And I think setting him up with Miriam Lass was always the plan. I think he was holding on to Miriam Lass. He told Miriam, I'm saving you for last. But really what he was doing was, I'm saving you for when I need to frame somebody. So you've been psychically driven to set up the person of my choice, and that's Frederick Chilton. Um, And I would assume that that took time to not only to erase her memories of him, but to give her memories of Frederick. Like, that requires, you know, some effort. Um, And I... um, So I think that's, that's kind of been his eventually they're going to get too close and that's when I'll throw them this. So I'm just going to hold on to this for that. Um, and I, now I think the stuff about getting Will back in therapy and all that, I think that, I think Will is the person who can still catch Hannibal by surprise. I think that's part of why Hannibal, you know, you know, purrs whenever Will's around. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> he totally purrs. You know, yeah, yeah. You know, I think <laughs> you know Will is the person who, you know, Will Will is interesting in that way. Will is a wild card for Hannibal. Yeah. Um, not completely because you know Hannibal can still play Will, but you know, and especially now that Will knows that there's a game, you know, I think it's even less predictable but most of this yes has gone according to his design and it, yeah. it it's a big it's been a big long-reaching design with deep roots which is why when will hip to it he saw the tree the tree manifests you know trees don't grow that fast slow you know naturally mm-hmm. and he saw okay this has been a long far-reaching design um that was actually a really, really good metaphor they put together there. Yeah. yeah. I'm yeah. still really receiving it. Yeah, it was gorgeous. Like, I mean, it like extended from the previous episode with all of the kind of like visuals. And I even said, I didn't the love the tree before, like mm-hmm. in the previous episode, I didn't. Lo- and now looking back on it, I'm like, oh, well, that's because I'm just not as with it as, you know, the people making this show because <laughs> fucking A, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Weren't seeing the whole design yet. Indeed. I had, I was not willifying this shit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How about you, Phil? Uh, I'm, you know, I'm not sure I have much to add about what's been, just about the planning, Hannibal's planning or thought process. I, mm-hmm. uh Chilton is interesting how much of an idiot he kind of is in his natural instincts to do things I noticed in this episode like instead of calling to the FBI at the door 
he tries to silently run for them like things like that just like his instincts are to do the dumb thing every time like his every his time. his instinct yeah. for self-preservation is like zero uh yeah and, and I, I find that really interesting that it's if it had just been one instance or one moment i'd have been like oh come on guys come on writers but it's like a, so consistent his inability to make the right decision in any in any case whether it's Hannibal standing right in front of him and FBI guys two feet away or, you know, time to go to Jack to confess or whatever, you know, it's. um. Well, and I yeah. mean, this goes all the way back. His ineptitude mm-hmm. at this yeah. <laughs> and, goes way back to the beginning because yeah. it's like he's all like, oh, I'm, you know, using all of these tactics and he's mm-hmm. essentially like, you know, trying to be a manipulator and he's right. so bad at it so bad like he fails so terribly at it and then it's like when ev- and it's like he can see manipulation mm-hmm. but it's like he can't control it at all yeah. yeah and um it only helps hannibal like to a degree yeah. that <laughs> that's insane yeah. i mean I, yeah it's like he was the perfect patsy yeah i'm sure the very first time hannibal met chilton he was like oh I am going to, um, <laughs> this, this guy is like, that I could for. eat this guy, but I think I could save him for a better purpose. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> Who's really being saved for last, am I right? And I do like just Gideon, his sort of like, um, oh, he's done with the story now. There's no real big out for getting. He's just rolled away in, the, in that shot. <laughs> I love it. Like, Bye. No, no applause. He's gone. Yeah, <laughs> I did kind of laugh about that too. Um, <laughs> after all the time we've spent with him, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right, mm-hmm. well, let's uh, let's dive in because Hannibal and Will in this episode. Um, now that Will is free, um, they share two scenes in this that are just remarkable. <laughs> <laughs> and I just want to talk all about these two scenes. So first up, we have the kitchen scene where Will pulls a gun on Hannibal and Hannibal flinches. Like, I was shocked when he actually flinched. Like, he was really like, he didn't, like we were just saying, he didn't know what Will was going to do. I was like, oh my God. He's like, he doesn't know. What I found even more amazing was that he didn't do anything to stop Will. Like he, he kind of like resigned himself to the fate, whatever fate Will chose in that moment and was like, either way, I guess this will, this is good. Is <laughs> <laughs> what it seemed like to me anyway. Um, and so I like, do you think like I had my kind of quick question about that before moving on to the next scene is like, you know, do you think he knew what Will would do? Do you think he knew Will wouldn't shoot him? Um, but then I want to then go to the next scene in the office, the final scene where um, Will shows up with a fresh new look and he has obviously clearly designed himself to be appealing and enticing to Hannibal. And um, (laughs) like he is using himself as bait to land Hannibal. And um, so like, like 
in between those two scenes, like what do you think happened in between those two scenes to bring Will to that final moment? Um, and I mean, like also Hannibal seems to like know in that final scene, it's like, he seems to know what Will's game is, but he's like, it's okay. I still want to play it with you. And so I'm just like, who do you think has the edge right now? And what do you think of all of this? Oh my God. I love it so much. <laughs> I will say that while I think Hannibal flinching from the gun, at least the first time, because he kind of flinches twice. Mm -hmm. I think it's kind of genuine. I think he also knows that if he shows his vulnerability, that vulnerability in that moment will humanize him. And if Will sees him as human, Will won't kill him. And mm -hmm. I do believe that Hannibal is that. I don't think it's something he pre-planned. I just think it's something that he's smart enough to know and figure out in the moment. That's I think that's Hannibal thinking on his feet, you know. Mm -hmm. um, now, <laughs> when Will comes to Hannibal's office, that was like, you know. That was like pizza delivery porn. Uh, That's what that was. It was. You know what I mean? And it's like it you're, on a, you're on a diet and you can't take the pizza from the really hot chick who's delivering it. But damn it. All right. Damn it. You have to have that pizza. I mean, like, I think that. I have never seen dieting represented in pizza delivery porn, but that's well, I just okay. have to tell you, like, you know, <laughs> such is the life of such is the life of a fat kid, Claire. Um, um, I um I think that you know they've stated quite openly that it Hannibal's driving force is he wants to know what will happen. He's mm -hmm. curious what will happen. And he knows, yes, like, Will might be trying to, to catch me. He might be trying to get me. But Will has to put himself at risk to falling deeper into my spell, to getting tangled more tightly in my web in order for that to happen. So I think Hannibal is weighing risk and reward here. You know, um, mm -hmm. I don't think Hannibal can help himself. I think he can justify it to himself. Do you know what I'm saying? Because yes. the heart wants what the heart wants, you know? Yes. And I mean, that's just what's going on with Hannibal, you know? Yeah. And the thing is, Will wants it too, sort of. You know, Will has two really conflicting desires, you know? And I think... I actually think a lot of this stuff really pays off in the next episode, you know? Mm -hmm. Agreed. <laughs> yes, it does. I agree with that statement. Um, I agree with a lot of what you said, Justin. I see, I mean, I've always talked about Hannibal and Will being, you know, two ends of this polarity. And, um, at this stage in the show, I think is when they have the most fun playing with that polarity. 
you know, when Will comes in to take the stance as what would be considered the masculine energetic, which is very single focused and penetrative. And then we get to see Hannibal in this sort of, in a surrender, you know, Mm -hmm. he becomes Mm -hmm. soft and he lets go of control. And he's, he really does kind of, especially in the kitchen, he succumbs to Will in that moment. And I think that that is what makes Will so um, exciting and exhilarating for Hannibal is because he, Hannibal isn't able to predict Will because Will is just as smart as he is. Um, And I think that being uh, Hannibal, I feel like he really loves being caught off guard and he rarely is because everybody is, you know, to him, such a fucking moron that he's just like, God, this is boring, you know, until Will's around. Um, And I think you're totally right, Justin, that like being him, making himself vulnerable as a sort of defensive tactic is probably completely true. But I also think that he kind of relishes that a little bit. I think that 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 allowing himself to be vulnerable, especially in front of Will, is like a massive turn on for him. Yeah. And then I think in that kitchen scene, that is when Will really starts to see that, which is why he shows up looking like a fucking snack. (laughs) (laughs) Because he's like, oh, got it. Yeah. Yeah. I recognize this tactic in myself. (laughs) (laughs) folks if um, if only you knew how often kelly sue showed up to these recording sessions looking like a snack (laughs) uh, i'm of course speaking of the times you know in my life formerly when i was still alive (laughs) (laughs) i think we're at the trust building stage of their relationship and and that's you know, I think because I'm still, you know, every time I am in watching one of these scenes where I believe Hannibal, like I want to believe with Lisa that, that, that these react, the reaction from Hannibal in the kitchen is the spontaneous, like true emotion being, you know, communicated to Will, but at the same time, you can never trust that with Hannibal. You can never, ever, ever trust it. And I wonder if, you know, Will is showing up and kind of poking at the bear, right, to see if he can get it to come out of the cave. Um, I think underneath that as well, he is, he is poking at Hannibal to see what reactions he gets in order to see if he can trust those reactions at any, like, and I don't know how you go about doing that. And that's the dysfunctionality for me of the relationship is that, is that they, you're two people who are wanting to come together and rely on the other person for the things that they want from that other person, but neither one of them can trust that, that what they're receiving is real because they're both they neither of them can can forge a relationship without manipulation um so it's just it's so yeah it's it's wonderfully played out because it how much acting is going on 
not by the actors, but by, you know, by the the actual characters. Um, And it's just endlessly like fascinating. Um, And then to, to see like, you know, like we, everybody said to see Will really step into the role and go, yes, I am in a role now and I am acting and I am going to be driving events and here, and I'm going to show up and, and, and again, he knows that Hannibal knows that he knows, <laughs> you know, it's just, I love those situations in, 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 uh, drama in conflict when, when both parties know that the other one knows, but they're still going to play everything out because it's just fun. <laughs> Sometimes that's all, it, that's all they need. Um, yeah, so good. Um, Phil, what's your take on our titular murder husbands in this episode? They're still murder boyfriends. They're still murder Murder boyfriends boyfriends right now. Yeah, they haven't sealed the deal yet. (laughs) (laughs) No one's put a ring on it yet. It's, it's hard for me to talk about this episode without talking about the next episode, because I feel like they're relationship is so tied together in this and next that uh you know we we've dealt with a few genres we've dealt with obviously the procedural the courtroom drama i feel like we're kind of in the torrid soap opera phase now of the series uh and that kind of that's really i mean i'll get more into kind of some of the stuff with the next episode but uh you know all the stuff that claire was just talking about is like very soap opera very operatic in that regard. And uh, I feel like Hannibal is find it, kind of finally starting to create its own genre in a way. Now it's kind of toyed and tinkered with other genres, kind of turned them on their heads a little bit. And now between with the two characters, it's like, all right, we, we've given the audiences a bit of what they want, what they wanted and what they expect, I guess, from something like this. Now we're gonna treat these two characters in a way that kind of for like, let's a new almost genre kind of bloom out of what they've been doing. Uh, and that's kind of what I felt like, obviously this episode has a lot of purpose with uh, children, a lot of story purpose going on. And so there, the character melodrama between the two of them isn't quite fully explored until the next episode, but you see those like that groundwork getting laid here a bit. And uh, it's, it's very interesting to me what's happening, especially how much other characters overlook what's happening when obviously it's quite bizarre that that this is even happening, um, which makes it feel even more soap operatic to me, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, this show, I mean, it delivers everything that everybody wants because it's like <laughs> this, it's like a surreal horror, romantic crime drama. Emo, goth, procedural. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so whatever you call that, yeah. um, Hannibal did it. Um, but yeah, um, I love what everyone had to say about that. I really liked Kelly Sue, what you had to say about them kind of like switching roles. Hey, they're switched. And... They're switched. They're okay. Being top or bottom. Uh, yeah. as opposed to what Justin was saying previously, they're, they're finding they their way. Verse. Episodes ago. Um, all right. Well, yeah. On that. On that note, let's take a quick break and hear a message or two before we come back and talk about 
amputees. See you in a minute. (laughs) (laughs) You're not going to want to miss this. Welcome back. Um, we are going to, for this next question, I wanted to focus on Miriam. Um, cause she's back. And I remember the first time I watched this, like Jack finding her and being like, Oh, this is going to be great. What a delicious wrinkle. <laughs> cause we saw what happened. Um, and then it was like, Oh no, she can't remember anything. So she can't remember who the ripper is, how she got taken. Um, (laughs) she's traumatized and she is literally in pieces. Um, and you know, we're going, we're kind of going through her whole kind of like, you know, post-trauma kind of situation. And one of these scenes is her being outfitted with a prosthetic arm. And, um, I, I noticed particularly on this watch, like how long and lingering the scene is. And then it's just like in the next scene, she's just kind of like having a scene, I think with Jack and she's just, you know, wearing a sweatshirt and she's got her little, you know, prosthetic. I think it's actually with Will. Oh, it's Will. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and so it's like, I, I, last night I was like, I mean, it's interesting because technically that prosthetic scene of her being outfitted didn't didn't like need to happen and as far as the story could have just been like okay mm-hmm. we see that she's got a prosthetic arm now but i i was interested in how much time was like how much time and how much care was put into filming the scene and like how it was all presented mm-hmm. um and um so i just kind of wanted to explore with you guys Um, because I, I mean, on a personal note, I have like recurring dreams about amputation and losing limbs, like all the time. Um, and so that's another kind of thing that like made me more interested in the scene and like kind of what it, what it meant towards like what it's kind of saying about Miriam's return and not only what that means for her, but what that means for everybody else. So um, yeah, I just kind of wanted to talk to y'all about what you thought of that scene, what you think of like kind of the symbolism of the arm, the prosthetic, all that. I'm so happy that you brought this up because on this rewatch, the one thing that I also noticed in the prosthetic arm montage mm-hmm. is the, um, the attention to them putting like the skin on the prosthetic arm yeah Yeah. it reminded me so much of the georgia mansion episode Mm. where he pulls the sleeve of skin off of her arm yeah and now miriam is back and she's having skin put on her arm and i'm like this means something i don't know what it is Ellie Sue, I'm about to blow your mind. I'm so excited. But I was noticing it and I was like, it's so interesting where it's like, you know, you were taken. There was no Liam Neeson's. 
<laughs> there was not. And now you're back and it's like, this is a, this is not real. And we're just going to insert you back into life. Be like, here's some fake skin and a fake arm. And now be normal and tell us everything that happened to you. Mm. You know, there was, it, it was like, it, it created the uncomfortability of her experience coming back into the world for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm ready to have my mind blown. Justin, take it away. Yeah, let's hear it. So Georgia Madsen was played by Ellen Muth, who played a character who was the lead character in Brian Fuller's Dead Like Me. Right. Where she played a character named Georgia Lass. Oh, come on. <laughs> And Madchen <laughs> is German for young girl or lass. Oh my God. Uh, what? <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'm just, I don't think that you're putting those two things together is strictly by accident. I think it's also worth noting here with, um, I mean, like they are really, this show goes out of its way to pay homage to other versions of this story all the time. Yeah. Um, everything that happens with Miriam Lass in this episode is a pastiche of what happens to Clarice Starling. Really, everything yeah. that happens mm-hmm. with her character, period. Yeah. yeah. You know, Miriam Lass is a trainee the way Clarice was, gets mm-hmm. called up to the majors by Jack Crawford. Mm-hmm. and sent out into, you know, do what is supposed to be training work and ends up in jeopardy. Yeah. And then here in her second appearance, she basically gets brainwashed. Her her brain, she'd been fucked with in the brain by Hannibal, mm-hmm. just like what happens to Clarice Starling at the end of the novel Hannibal. Hannibal takes her and, you know, and mm-hmm. brainwashes her and ends up making her his lover and she mm-hmm. becomes a killer and cannibal with him and blah, blah, blah. They go off to munch happily ever after. So, mm-hmm. like, I think that you're picking up exactly what they're laying down. That's what I think, you know? Thank so, you. Because I was thinking, I'm just not intelligent enough to know what this is. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think you just weren't in the room. Exactly. So that makes me feel better about myself selfishly. However, <laughs> I also think that Lisa, you nailed it with this question. Yes. That we're all very smart because we knew Justin <laughs> was up with this prosthetic situation. And we know that Miriam Lass is not, there's more to this than, yes. you know, what we see. And that there's, you know, we talk a lot about the symbolism in this show and it's like, there's the symbolism just within the you know the Hannibal canon mm-hmm. but Brian Fuller has his own symbolism on and top canon. of oh, that yeah. symbolism <laughs> yeah. you know yeah sure. um, well, and that and that prosthetic is like a complicated piece and and mm-hmm. I was struck in this episode watching it this time by the triptych that we get of after they find Miriam you have the scene where they're taking the evidence from her body and she mm-hmm. is zoned out not really there yet then we get the prosthetic arm fitting scene, which is very similar. It's they're all scenes where other people are doing things, but the central figure is, you know, there is having things done to them. 
And then at the end, we have Frederick Chilton as they're taking evidence from Frederick standing there while they're, you know, um, our happy little CSI team. God, I love them so much. They're so great. Um, our, it's funny because cataloging. I, see end, I see the end of that sequence as her getting her memories probed again by Hannibal in his office. You know, right. because again, it's yeah. about something being done to her. And like, I see, you know, sure. the yeah. same thing. Yeah, absolutely. You know? yeah. And that yeah. that mimics those kinds of all, of, you can think of any kind of period piece where the the royalty is, you know, being dressed for the thing they have to go do. So, um, you know, not to just go to Lord of the Rings every single time, but I think of like Theoden being, having his armor put on and he is mm -hmm. in his headspace about what it is he needs to do. Um, watching the prosthetic scene though, particularly like a, it made me feel the trauma she must feel. And at the same time, understand the degree to which she has been programmed because mm -hmm. I think it's, we're, she's having something done to her about her arm the same way she talks about, you know, Hannibal having said, well, you know, very nicely, I'm going to take your arm. And then he, he, you know, he does it in a very, you know, humane way as humanely as it can be done. Right. And so again, here's this prosthetic and it's being done to her, but it's also the, the tail end of what Hannibal is doing to her. He, you know, the, the natural outcome of what he has done is that she'll have this prosthetic arm and, and really the, the visual symbolism of it, just having all of these straps and things while it's putting on, it just, it feels so Pinocchio puppet strings. I'm, I'm directing you. And you feel at the same time, like she's in that headspace of like, I'm being yeah. prepared for what I need to go yeah. do, which is point the finger at Chilton yeah. and pull a trigger yeah. or, gonna, you know, whatever, you know, yeah. I'm going to take a piece of you and replace it with something of my own kind of. Yeah. Own. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And just, yeah. there's that really. ongoing control. If there, if there's one thing that this show can do, could do for me um, in a fourth season, I would just like a little, I don't care if it has anything to do with story or not. I really need to know what Miriam Lass might be doing. <laughs> Like, <laughs> I know. I, yeah. Like, yeah. is she okay? I don't know. <laughs> like um, what, yeah. how do and you, and that's just a question of like, how do you move on from like, what does she do? What? Yeah. How do you deprogram? Mm -hmm. uh, I would yeah. like um, to step into Phil's shoes for a moment. Um, because this, the fact that you asked this question really brought me to a storyteller's point of view as opposed to a an audience's point of view mm -hmm. um and what one thing i really noticed because they cut from giving fitting uh her with her prosthetic to the scene with will mm -hmm. and one of the things that came out of that was they didn't have to digitally remove her arm anymore you know they didn't have to mm -hmm. like now they can just have her have a long sleeve on and not move her hand and you know and we're sold so there's a very practical purpose behind sure. that scene, you know yeah yeah um at the same time i was taken very much into scott mccloud some scott mccloudy shit mm. because you know there are ways to tell a story and ways to to evoke a mood and yes. like none of these scenes except for the last one none of these scenes that are centered on miriam are 
you know, are necessarily vital to putting the story, pushing the story forward, as you point out in the question. Um, but they do a lot to establish tone, to deepen mood, to mm -hmm. really put you in Miriam's headspace, you know, like the, the strings and the puppet, the replacing a part of you with a part of me, like all of that is there. But really more than anything else, there's a real theme, for me anyway, I, should, I shouldn't say more than anything else, but the, what I really took away from it was that she's just broken. Yeah. And these are the beginnings of efforts to put her back together. Yeah. Yeah. You know? I'm so glad that you brought up Scott McCloud because when I was thinking about the scene um, and I was thinking about like the different ways um, in, I know it, I think he talks about it in making comics um, the sequel to Understanding Comics, but it's like um, he talks about like the kind of choice of frame and there are like five different like choices of like frame to frame movements that you can do. And one of the ones he talks about is aspect to aspect where you're cre where you're really that's just the point. You're not moving the story forward, but you're just drawing like a, a mood and a, you're setting a mood and a tone. And I actually thought Oh, it's aspect to aspect as I was thinking about the scene. So it's amazing that you brought up. Scott well, that's McCloud. exactly because that's exactly what I was thinking that it's aspect yeah. to aspect because it's it's all about establishing a mood or a feeling like yeah. grounding you in something as opposed to something more concrete and story driven. Um, and McLeod makes the point that that's something that's used a lot in Japanese comics. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting that this is the season with all the Japanese titles, you know oh, what I mean? Oh, look and at I just that. Like, God damn. So many ties. All right, I'll just <laughs> end this. You. What's Fuller. that? Oh, yeah, we're totally. on to you, Fuller. <laughs> <laughs> so I will just wrap this up by saying that the one thing that I can't, cause I was like thinking about it a lot, like you Kelly, so I was like, I know this means something, but what is it? And then finally hit me as the end when it was like she was you know compelled and like conditioned to like accuse and like go after Chilton yeah and it was like especially in that scene where she's like it's a bionic style arm where she arm. can kind of control the movements and it was mm -hmm. like the way she was looking at it and it's like she's controlling her limbs but also someone else is controlling her limbs and I was like anyway so many goddamn layers in this show. I know that was great I enjoyed that literally layers of that arm, everybody. entire I took myself on an entire like imagination rabbit hole thinking like ooh did Hannibal app the hospital that Chilton also tapped to record Chilton using this exact tactic with mm. Gideon. Thought about that too. And I just wow. went down this whole rabbit hole of how he would have gotten recordings of Chilton's voice and all of this other. Oh my God. You know, it's like, Hannibal's all the way down. <laughs> all the way down. <laughs> all right. Let's go to our next segment Exquisite Corpse which yes. will be um, presented to us today by Claire. Yeah, 
I'm not even sure how many corpses we have in this episode because <laughs> I think you, I think we have some walking corpses. We have some actual dead corpses. We have some maybe corpses. Like we don't know yet if, if Frederick Chilton is um, a corpse or not, <laughs> um, et cetera, et cetera. I was really struck though because, and I went back and watched it like three times. The the scene in Chilton's house after Hannibal kills the FBI agents and God, once again, uh, Raul Esparza just in that scene alone could have won an Emmy of him being up coming to and blood all over his shirt and the gun in his hand and walking through his house. And as he's walking into the kitchen, just the amount of blood spatter and, you know, everything else that looks so it, it at least in this one it particularly looks staged in a way that was you know very deliberate obviously mm-hmm. um but what struck me about this particular scene and you know we don't going to see anybody you know analyze it per se like will does um but what struck me about it is really all hannibal needed to do in that scene was do the wound man right Mm. but he he does there's two agents and the second agent he propped up sitting like he's like he's still alive right and and functioning props this body up sitting which i'm trying to figure out the rigor mortis timeline for the our ability to do that but in any case um and has him disemboweled. So he takes the time and effort to make this statement. And as Raul Esparza is walking by it, and he realizes that the, the intestines are hanging out, he it it is a it is just an F you to Chilton. It is just a ha ha, I I caused this to be done to you, you know, or you know, this is what was done to you. So I'm gonna poke you in your very specific trauma about what you has happened to you um i you know and i don't know what there is to discuss around that but you know just the i think it says something about the spectrum of hannibal's um murderiness (laughs) in in terms of in terms of of like what he does that is deliberate, you know, you've got the one body that's the wound man that is very much there for the purposes of manipulation and driving the plot the way he wants it to go. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you have the murder that is just the screw you, you deserve this. Mm-hmm. Or kind of, you know, just like this is what I think about you, or I just want to be petty and what do you take, you know, what, what are your, what are your thoughts of like different motivations, I guess, around Hannibal's killing, actual slurring? Yeah. It seems like the, it's like the closing of a loop because we have Gideon. He finds Gideon first and, you know, mm-hmm. the first time we see the wound man is in Gideon and Miriam's episode from season one. That first time we meet Miriam and Gideon is the first time mm-hmm. we see the wound man. So it's all kind of like tied into like, oh, this is what the Chesapeake Ripper does. And we meet Chilton and Gideon and Miriam all in that same episode from season one where we're talking about the wound man and we're talking about how Gideon did that. 
And then, you know, later on in season one, when Gideon takes Chilton and cuts his guts out. And so it's like, it's the entire scene is a huge fuck you to Chilton, not just the one guy, all of it is a fuck you to Chilton. Yeah. And it's gorgeous. (laughs) Yeah. As disgusting as it is. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it just, and it cre- it gives us this moment where Raul gets to react to that particular corpse, you know, that one specifically. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's very brief, but his reaction to it is amazing. It's yeah. so good. Yeah. I just, those are, those are the times when I'm like, oh yeah, I just, I can feel this joyous little child in Hannibal that's like, you know, I'm going to do all of this work and I'm going to add to the work that I need to do just so that I can F you, you know, just so I can, it's a flourish. It's, it's, you know, he's finishing the hat. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) When you're talking about scenes that we don't need to have that scene in this murder tableau that we don't need to have really, it doesn't, it doesn't, you know, it's, it's superfluous, but not to Hannibal to be done. It's not superfluous to Hannibal. Yeah. Like you said, yeah. Finishing the hat. And again, and sitting um, up, it's he's sitting up on a kitchen counter and has not fallen over. So like three, I, what, what do they say about mortis? It has to be like three or more hours, three or four hours. That's how long it's been. Yeah. Well, and he had to do the whole man scene. (laughs) Listen, it's going to take some time. Indeed. You're, you're on mute Kelly soon. (laughs) (laughs) Part of me watching it was like, you know, Frederick, you really should feel pretty special. Mm. This is all for you, Frederick. (laughs) (laughs) It's all for you. It is. Oh man. And also don't be so bummed about being locked up. Cause I'm pretty sure that's basically the only place you're safe. <laughs> and once again, how the and then he gets shot Hannibal... in the face. Yeah. yeah, that's yeah and then he gets shot in the face though. Yeah. How did Hannibal achieve getting all of the Abel Gideon stuff in Chilton's house? Again, like does he, have a murder, does he have a murder moving crew that just comes and helps him? Because I can't figure it out always. Like murder elves? He doesn't sleep. Murder the elves. Man, I know the man doesn't sleep. He probably doesn't Absolutely. need it. Absolutely. No. There is a cut scene from this episode. <gasps> uh, Fuller initially planned a sequence where Hannibal goes down to his basement kill room, then goes through a door and goes through miles of an underground steam tunnel that leads straight to Chilton's <laughs> No way. Explain Hannibal's comings and goings. Wow. And it was cut for budgetary reasons. Wow. What? So he literally dug a tunnel. He dug a tunnel. He he didn't dig it, but it's there. Yeah. Is it their neighbors? I'm uh, well, so glad that that was cut because I underground steam tunnel. So no, I I I don't buy that. I I. That's so. Angel. I'm glad that was cut because no. Yeah, it would have been. A, it would have been a step too far. That's oh, yeah, it's too yeah. far. I would that's, rather. Yeah. I would rather have it be just inexplicable logistics yeah, than yeah. it be yeah. that. 
Yeah. Yeah. Just leave it to our imagination. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. I will I just, say. I just like picture a very sweaty Hannibal, like like of moving you do. Bo- like of course, stuff that's all. around. <laughs> and, and, then, and then he has to I clean was about himself. To say, and I sentence. picture a very sweaty Hannibal. <laughs> Done. Period. How many times have we heard that? <laughs> right. Don't need any more. I was just picturing if this is actually true and Hannibal is employing underground tunnels, (laughs) then in my mind, what I do is like, okay, so this entire Hannibal is actually a giant origin story for the Shredder. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. Wow. Um, I'm just uh, for a little bit of context this weekend Kelly Sue found out I had not seen the live action Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movies and so now it's my assignment Wow! so we've got TMNT on the mind love it 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 isn't a stretch I I feel like this is a good time to tell you that me and my friends when we were in college literally (laughs) climbed down into the university sewers you know um, that I have a, a scar on my leg from my friend's katana because we were playing Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles with actual weapons and I got oh I mean it probably went did in you, you were you one of those kids story by saying when yes. we were in college you were one yeah. of those kids that I, parents were afraid of playing D&D or watching turtles because they would actually oh, my parents go do that shit I played D&D at the like right when the satanic panic happened yeah and my my parents who were not very religious were like should you believe me playing this? And I was like, it's fine, it's fine. No, it's yeah. the Hobbit. It's not. You and know. it was it was Turtle, the Turtles that actually did it. Not, oh not yes, it was the Turtles that got He's me hurt. Downstairs, yes. summoning something called a vessel hydra. <laughs> <laughs> um, I do, I do want to step back into Philip's shoes for a moment, just about to, to revisit the exquisite course for just a second. Um, like in watching this episode multiple times, this last time I watched it. I was really noticing the music mm-hmm. in that scene. Yeah. Because it has this mm. really mocking, almost whimsical tone. To comedic. It. Yeah. The, mm-hmm. the music in this entire episode is mm. kind of comedic. It's, you know? it's insane. And Thank you for bringing it, that up. But then the thing is, right up until they reveal the wound man. Yeah. At which point it hits this sort of dissonant crescendo. And then transitions to the more traditional Hannibal soundtrack. Well, uh-huh. well he's, he's, the, he's the fool. Chilton he's the comedic clown in this series and so for the episode about him to have sort of almost that and I noticed that too Justin I, I the the sort of comedic tones of the music I, this entire episode is wonderful yeah it was him him running up the side of the hill and slipping and falling and oh, he's, such, God, yeah. he's such the clown he's such the fool yeah. um yeah. But yeah he's the fool like yeah yeah like you know clown implies comedy which yeah right he does provide right but it's also there's a great deal of pathos, which yes. also is you know yeah, the fool, yeah. provided by it. And he's like I don't know how many of you have ever read Preacher. Mm-hmm. I read like, the first few. You know, Hair Star in Preacher is sort of the fool again yeah. as well, and something really shitty happens to him all the time. He gets these really horrible, debilitating injuries. <laughs> yes, he does. And like that's what I keep seeing happening to children. You know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Oh, Chilton. Oh, Chilton. <laughs> Still super worried All about right. being fashionable while he's on the run. Right. Mm. Well, if your name's Freddie in this show, you're probably pretty fashionable. <laughs> point. Good point. 
connections y'all <laughs> um anyway thank you claire for that exquisite corpse that was a fun one wasn't it yeah <laughs> oh my god it's so fun all right on to the recommendation if you enjoyed this episode of hannibal Philip has a recommendation for something else you might enjoy. Yeah, so I'm going to take it back to some early Japanese cinema. Um, Ozu is the director's name. Uh, kind of these little soap operatic films, not quite as melodramatic as, uh, say, Hannibal. Um, but he does employ, he created sort of a, an editing tool that um, called the pillow shot, similarly to what you two were talking about, the Scott McCloud kind of elements where you create tone with some stuff. The pillow shot was something that was used to in between scenes of just still life. So he didn't have to dissolve or anything like that. And it would just settle there and allow you to sort of take in what was happening with the story and the characters. Um, and, and Kurosawa used it and it was pretty much used by everybody in, in Japanese cinema since then. And, and a lot of the stuff we're seeing in Hannibal reminds me of that sort of editing tool. Um, but I will recommend people watch Tokyo Story, which is a lovely, beautiful film. Um, early summer or late spring, all, all uh, wonderful films. Uh, Tokyo Story is probably his, his, one of his most well-known films, so it might be good to start with that one. But uh, yeah, yeah, really great stuff. Very cool. Thanks, Philip. Mm -hmm. um, I look forward to checking that stuff out. Um, all right. With that, we close discussion of, what was the name of this episode again? <laughs> <laughs> Yakamono. <laughs> thanks for joining us everyone um please join us next week as we discuss um episode eight of season two of hannibal um and please check out some of our other podcast series um particularly that episode was um where we talk about television as it's airing we talked earlier about why the last man and i guess as of airing yes we will yeah. be talking we are talking about the final season of the expanse so check those out um, for more in-depth talk about stuff um, you can always help us by subscribing, sharing, and leaving a nice comment. Following us on Popsicle Pod on all social media platforms or signing up for our newsletter at popsiclepod.com. That is P O P S K L P O D. Until next time, happy hunting. This has been a Popsicle Podcast production. Can I just say, I love the word titular. It's a word I use in writing probably more often than as appropriate. Mm. But when, uh, when Lisa said it just now, it sounded so much like an adjectival form of tit. Yeah. Or tits. Like it, it really, like I really thought she was like, describing something as tit-like do you know what i'm saying titular you know titular it's just sort of I, like titular in shape i just felt like it needed to be <laughs> yes you know like or you know or she was like my titular region you know like mm -hmm. <laughs> i just yep. anyway i apologize oh you don't have to apologize for
This is what Hannibal does that to you. Kind of thing. Yes, yes, yeah. indeed. <laughs>